Rathbone's Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood. I'm Andrea Catherwood and welcome to the latest episode of the Rathbones Look Forward series. I'm talking to some of the great thinkers, journalists and writers of our time, focusing on the future of our changing world. Today we're looking at the future of happiness with economist, author and co-founder of the social movement Action for Happiness, Professor Richard Layard. His latest book, Can We Be Happier?, argues that the goal for society must be the greatest possible all-round happiness and shows how we can aim for that in our personal and professional lives. Richard, it's a pleasure to have you here talking to us today, virtually, as it were. Well, lovely to do it. Thank you. Richard, we'll talk later about the COVID pandemic and its long-term impacts on our happiness. But let's start by talking about how you think society judges happiness at the moment, our central goal, as you call it. Well, I think that the main goal that we offer young people today is personal success, better grades, better income than other people. Uh, And of course, anything that's comparative like that, when you look at it in terms of its impact on society as a whole, is zero sum, because for every winner, there's a loser. And that is not a way in which we can possibly make our society happier or indeed achieve what I would call real progress. That has to come through positive sum goals, where if I achieving my goal, it's making you better off. So my goal has got to be to improve your happiness as well as my own. And of course, that's very good for you and for the rest of society. It's also good for me because one of the uh, surest ways to become happy yourself, of course, is to, to make other people happier. So I think we've got to move our goal from this zero-sum goal of personal success to a positive-sum goal where we're trying to contribute as far as we can to the well-being of others. And that's actually why we founded Action for Happiness, you mentioned, and its members pledge in the way that they live to try and create as much happiness in the world as they can and as little unhappiness. And I think we have got to have that as the goal for everybody in our society. And that is the way in which we will indeed achieve a happier society by being clear that we're trying to create one. Now, I know that you think that we should view happiness as a key metric, a little bit like GDP, in assessing a nation's performance. How do we actually go about measuring happiness? Well, the most used measure, um, which has been used for about 50 years, is the measure of how satisfied you are with your life. Overall, how satisfied are you with your life these days? On a scale of 0 to 10, 10 extremely satisfied, 0 extremely dissatisfied. That is found to be a very reliable measure in the sense that it uh, correlates well with objective measurements that you can make in people's brains. It's also quite a good predictor of all sorts of things, like how long you'll live or how you will vote. And it's also something which we can indeed affect. We know a lot about what explains it, and that means that it's something which we can, when we're thinking about our personal lives or public policy, we can affect it. That's really interesting because it's not always the case that when people are asked in surveys for their opinions that they give honest ones, but they're honest about happiness. Yes, and people find it very easy to answer this question. It's uh, it's normally answered in one or two seconds. People know quite well where they stand on that. I think it has stood the, the test of time 
and uh, it should be really the way we think about what are we trying to do in our lives. We're trying to make other people happier, meaning that they feel more fulfilled and more satisfied with their lives. And that is also the state of mind that we want to be in ourselves. Let's talk then about what makes us happy. We tend to focus on economic status as the key to a good life. But how much of a factor is the variation in a person's income when we're measuring their overall happiness? Well, actually, it's nowhere near the most important thing. And we've got a huge amount of evidence on this. You know, Britain is famous for its follow-up studies of people through life where you measure how happy they are and you also measure all sorts of features of their lives. And if you want to try and explain the huge spread, and we know it from our own experience, the huge spread of happiness in the population, if you want to explain that variation and especially how many people are really unhappy, the single most important factor explaining it is mental health measured by just a very simple question. Have you ever been diagnosed with depression or anxiety? So that's number one. Physical health is also important, of course, in old age. But the other hugely important things are human relationships. And that shows up very, very clearly. Relationships in the family, very important in every country in the world, of course. Relationships at work. Quality of work is a very important factor. And the relationship with the boss, we might come on to that, uh, is a very important element in that. And then, of course, the community. uh, Are people friendly? Do you feel safe? And then, only then, comes income. So income in uh, Britain and almost every other country the variation of income, the, the spread, the inequality of income, only explains 1% of the inequality of happiness in the community. These other factors that I've mentioned are explaining many, many times more than is explained by income. Now, the World Happiness Report has been produced annually since 2012, and it gives happiness rankings and trends in happiness for almost every country in the world. So which countries are the happiest and and what can we learn from them? Well, I think it's very interesting. Always, uh, year after year, it's the Scandinavian countries that are the happiest. And then comes Canada, New Zealand, Australia. And and then you get Britain and the USA and then you get the other European countries. Uh, And then, of course, you're going right down to the terribly sad conflict-torn countries Uh, of Africa and the Middle East. Um, It's a spread that goes from the average in the Scandinavian countries is over 7.5 out of 10. And the average in the most war-torn countries is under three. It's just amazing. You can see the extraordinary impact of the conditions of life uh, on, on people's happiness, but also the impact of the factors that I was talking about before. So why are the Scandinavian countries so high? Mm, Because they have much higher levels of trust, interpersonal trust. The question, really interesting question, has been asked for many years, uh, do you think most other people can be trusted? And in Scandinavian countries, you're getting answers, something like 70% saying yes. In Britain and America, it's in the low 30s. Very big difference there. And I think that Uh, That is the distinguishing feature of these most successful countries. They are egalitarian, not so much in terms of the actual distribution of money, though we could come on to that. 
but in the spirit of the people that you are encouraged to think of other people as your equals and focus on what you have in common with them rather than as i think in the anglo-american culture increasingly to focus on how you're different from and hopefully superior to other people i think the focusing on what you have in common and the kind of natural automatic respect which that generates from one person to another is an absolutely central secret for a happier society and all sorts of other good things can be shown to have come from that including as you know good health and so on so you've pointed out that britain doesn't do terribly on this chart on this index of happiness but of course there is room for improvement and if our goal is to create the greatest possible happiness what is the single most important thing that we can do as a society i know that poor mental health does seem to be a huge factor when it comes to people not feeling happy yes uh, i think mental health is the absolutely number one area where we need to do better both in the way in which we treat people who are suffering from mental health problems um, and, of course, in what we do to help prevent it early on in people's lives. So I think the, the most, most shocking thing to me is that something like 20% of the population have a, a mental health problem that would be diagnosed as severe enough to require treatment. This data that I'm quoting is from the great ONS population survey done recently. So the, 20, the need is 20%. But of those people, um, only a third are in, in, in our country in any form of treatment for a really disabling condition. So I'm interested... Just, 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 to, just to reinforce the disabling feature of it, I mean, a half of all absenteeism, a half of all people who are not able to look for work, let alone perform work, is down to mental illness. And yet, we have only a third of the people suffering from it being in any form of treatment. I mean, if this was any kind of physical illness, it would be considered absolutely outrageous that they're not nearly all of them in treatment. We only have a third, and uh, that, that is what we absolutely have to do something about. I mean, we are beginning to do something about it, and Britain is actually quite a leader in this. But um, there's a long, long way to go. So I'm interested if the, the countries that uh, appear higher on the happiness index, do they have fewer people, less than the 20% that you mentioned, who actually are suffering with poor mental health? Or do they just have more of the people seeking help for it and therefore getting treatment for their mental health, a greater proportion getting treatment? It's a bit of both, but I, I'd have to say that these international measures of mental health are less reliable than the, the international measures of well-being. And the key point, I think, is that in the, in the rich countries, you've got, say, a third in, in Britain being treated more like 25% in the average rich country in treatment. In the poor countries, of course, you're down to 10% or 5% in treatment which is really, really disheartening. But I, I do think that there is a huge popular misconception about mental illness, which accounts for this under-treatment, which is that people don't realise 
that the, these conditions are curable and people can recover to full functioning um, who are suffering from terrible problems, panic attacks, being confined to their houses, unable to go out, out of the front door, utter depression and so on. People can be helped to recover. And there are very good evidence-based treatments with which at least 50% of people recover, usually after not more than about 10 sessions of psychological therapy. And their prognosis after that is pretty good, particularly if it was an anxiety condition. In general, people don't relapse with depression. There is some relapse, but it's much less uh, if people have been treated beforehand and recovered in that way. So we, a group of us, in the mid 2000, around 2005, started badgering the government to do something about this. And we got the, the service, which is known as Improving Access to Psychological Therapy, or IAPT, a bit of a terrible name, uh, set up from 2008. It's now treating 600,000 people a year with a recovery rate of over 50%. And it's growing every year. And I think that Britain is leading the way. We're, in fact, being copied. This service is being copied in now about seven or eight different countries. So there's, there's hope. I don't want to leave you with a, a picture of gloom about this. I want to leave you full of hope that we can move to a position where, just as when you have a physical health condition, you just can automatically get treatment. So you can if you've got a mental health treatment. Richard, at the current time with the COVID pandemic, we know that many people are experiencing anxiety both over the illness itself and also they've got economic worries, they've got fears for their relations, for their children's education. Is it possible to say yet what kind of effect this has had on our happiness? There's been a very good study uh, done at University College London using data which take people through from before the COVID epidemic into it. And that shows that roughly that people who already had mental health problems are suffering a 10% increase in the intensity of those problems. And that's particularly the case for younger people and to some extent for women compared with men. And uh, I think that uh, this is something which is a further argument, obviously, for speeding up the improvement of our mental health services not only for adults, but also for for young people, because the situation for young people has been actually even worse than for adults, and that's that's really, really shocking. Unless you were really in a very, very serious condition, it's quite difficult to get treatment from the CAMS, Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. Um, and we need another service that provides ordinary standard psychological therapy or behavioural training for people under 18. And that is just beginning to get underway in England. But that needs a huge amount of acceleration. I think that the COVID experience has focused a lot of people's minds on what are the the really serious problems um, in people's lives and that mental health, both children's mental health and adult mental health, are very central problems affecting or almost every extended family in the country. I wonder if you can suggest any ways in which we can better manage 
our own mental health in, in these challenging situations, how we can maintain our optimism and good spirits? <laughs> Very good question. Of course, everybody has their own system. Everybody already has a system of some sort. Um, but I think that the movement known as mindfulness is the one which tunes in to an awful lot of people who are looking for a rather more structured way of managing their own inner mental life. So this is a, a way of observing what happens in yourself and living more in the present and accepting the world, at least as it impinges on you, in a friendly way, noticing the negative feelings you have, but by noticing them, becoming more able to park them and create some space for positive experience of, of your own self and of your experience in the world around you. So I, I would recommend mindfulness as the most obvious way, and there are lots of mindfulness courses going on all, all over the country. The most obvious way is people can gain more control over their their own mental life. But there are there's a whole host of courses, a whole host of ways. Action for Happiness um, has, I think, a very, very valuable course, which is particularly oriented to what I was saying earlier, which is that by finding ways in which you can contribute to the well-being of the community, you, you will f feel better about yourself. I suppose a, a prime cause of unhappiness is self-absorption. Mm. And to find a way of accepting yourself and, and moving forward into engagement with the lives of others. These are crucial ways of achieving mental balance. I wonder how you feel um, about uh, technology and the news. And I say this as a news journalist myself, but, you know, we have uh, now got the news on our phones. It's pinging at us all the time. And particularly in the pandemic, when people have been fixated by the numbers, um, you know, with good cause. But we really have been listening to and watching some very negative and often distressing news all the time. I wonder if you think there is a cumulative effect of all this negativity on our mental health and how we should deal with it. Well, the thing which worries me most actually is social media, because in, so, in some way, you know, the, the ways in which you can react in a technical sense do actually impinge back on how you feel. So if you're in amongst other people and you're expected to behave in a civilised way, you sort of park. Everybody has negative feelings at frequent intervals, but you sort of park them. Social media seems to have legitimised the expression of every negative feeling everybody has, anybody has. And once you've expressed it, of course, it, it tends to then take a, a greater hold of you. So if you attend to something, as I'm sure you know, it comes to seem more important. Social media, I think, have led people to attend more to uh, their negative feelings and the negative things, which undoubtedly they also see going on and around them. But anger is not, a, is not a good emotion. The desire to improve things is an absolutely vital emotion, but just outrage, uh, especially associated with anger at a person, is not a productive emotion, and it is unfortunately on the rise because of the social media and I think that is a very worrying feature and uh, I, I'm hoping that we will 
get better codes of conduct on the social media as we have on the roads. The thing which always strikes me with technology is that in 1930, the number of people killed on Britain's roads was 7,000. Um, it's now 2,000, in spite of traffic being 100 times higher, because we've learnt manners on the road. We've also, of course, regulated the vehicles and the road space as well, and that's going to have to happen with social media. Okay, to take your cue and to look at something more positively, um, I wonder if we could emerge from the pandemic with a stronger society in terms of valuing cooperation and volunteering. For example, quite a few people have got involved in their communities in ways that they hadn't done before. People have got to know elderly neighbours, perhaps, or, you know, taken to volunteering, doing shopping for people who are shielding, etc. I wonder if there could be some positives that come out of this in terms of our happiness. Oh, I think there are two two huge positives from the, this experience. One is the experience of fellow feeling that we had, particularly during the lockdown, that we were all in it together and that we were part of a society and that we were sheltering, not just for our personal benefit, but for the protection of others. And that reminded people that the world is full of things that you would call public goods, where we depend on other people's behaviour for uh, having a, a good environment that we live in. So that, that's very positive, and I, I think that that memory is going to stay with people, and we, we obviously have to hang on to it and build on it. But the other thing which has happened in COVID, of course, is that all sorts of things have been done that nobody thought were possible. We've had huge government spending programmes and, and so on. Almost everybody has rethought in one way or another how they think they should live and conduct their their affairs. And... I very much hope that this is going to help us to bring in what I was talking about with you earlier, the idea that we actually do need a different goal. Uh, And the goal should be a happier society and we should be leading our lives with that as the thing which is motivating us and giving us our, our own satisfaction. So I think that in both those ways that we've experienced fellow feeling and that we've come to think that things can be different, not only in how we live our own lives, but I think we're coming to it later, how we conduct our government. Now, as we seek happiness in adult life, we know that a lot of our personality is shaped by our childhood. So how much are factors in our childhood the best predictors of whether an adult will be satisfied with their lives? And what does that tell us about the role of schools? Well, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And that's where these studies of the people born in a certain year and followed through throughout their lives um, tell us so much. So one of the things which we did in analysing the main British cohort study was to say, supposing the only things we know about somebody are their educational qualifications and how they scored at the age of 16 on a test of emotional health which of those is the better predictor of whether they'll have a satisfactory, satisfying and happy adult life? And the answer is that emotional health at 16, just measured on one day, is a better predictor of whether a person will have a happy life than all the qualifications they get. Now, that has huge implications, doesn't it, for what the educational system should be concerned about. But then the next question is, can schools actually do anything 
about the emotional health of children. And that's where, again, we found this extraordinary fact that if you um, are trying to explain emotional health at 16, you obviously want to, to take into account everything that you know about the, the child's parents, including the mental health of the children, their socioeconomic status, income, everything. But can you also explain it simply by which school they went to? And the answer is that which school a person went to explains as much of the variation in their happiness at 16 as everything we know about the person's parents. So schools are shown to be having a huge effect on the happiness of their children. Just tell me um, a little bit more about that then in terms of what, what, what a good school looks like, you know, in terms of nurturing emotional health. How can they, how can that be measured and, and what are they doing right that other schools could emulate? Well, what we want schools to do, obviously, is to have the well-being and character development of children as an explicit goal. And to do that effectively, they should be measuring the progress of their children in that way. Otherwise, how are we ever going to get something else in the scales to balance the test scores, which are the obsession of schools now? Uh, and then, of course, we've got to have the schools knowing how they can then help children. And partly it's the ethos of the school, the kind of codes of behaviour and mutual respect uh, which are followed by the teachers to themselves, to each other and to the children and to the parents, but also, of course, by really effective teaching of life skills. And this can be done in a completely professional way because we've now got well-tested materials that have been subjected to proper randomised trials, just like a, a drug in the health service. And we know that th these have s significant impacts on the, the well-being of the children. I've been involved in one trial of a curriculum for children from 11 to 15, one hour a week, based on a whole variety of really well-tested materials, but delivered by teachers who have been properly trained to use these materials and that can be shown to have a, a, a major effect. So we've got to have, at the same time, a conscious adoption of a different complementary goal for schools. Many schools do, of course, already, but every school has to. But then enabling schools to do it by making available to them these materials and the teacher training that's needed to back it up. And this should be, certainly in secondary schools, should be as solid a subject as any other with teachers trained to specialise in it. But if it matters whether children know the history of the country, it surely matters whether they understand themselves and other people and their own place in it. So I think there's a, a huge potential now. And in England, it's quite interesting that this government is the first government to have made this this subject compulsory. They haven't said how much it has to be taught, but I would say a minimum of an hour a week with really inspiring materials. And I think we, we will get an, a new and exciting group of people coming into the teaching profession who want to teach this. It's interesting, in your book you actually mention uh, in the Netherlands schools are required each year to measure how their students feel about their well-being and safety. Do you think that's something that we could try and incorporate into our curriculum here? We must do. We have to do that. Um, and, and of course, it's, it's, uh, the important thing is how the child is progressing because schools differ in their in initial intake. You can't judge a school 
by the level of happiness, but by the progress of happiness in their school. This is done in the Netherlands. Well, I'll tell you how it's done in the Netherlands. It's also done in southern Australia, but on a voluntary basis. But you have the central government taking responsibility for the questionnaire, making it easy for schools to administer online. You're talking about 20 minutes once a year for the children. And then the central government does the analysis so the school doesn't have to bear the burden of that. And then the school is just told how it's doing relative to other schools. It's a proper benchmarking operation where a school can see how it's doing compared to other schools or compared with the previous years of itself. We've got to get this taken seriously because, unfortunately, it's, it's the fact that you only nowadays treasure it if you measure it. Interesting. And let's hope the, uh, that children are back at school in September because, of course, none yes. of this can be done. It's very difficult to do this while children are working, studying at home. Absolutely. Mm. Now, one of the findings of happiness research, which might really seem obvious, is that on average, people don't much like their work. And when you think that we spend a quarter or a third of our waking hours at work, this can obviously have a profound impact on our happiness I wonder if you think that the pandemic is an opportunity to reset, and, and how would we do that? Well, I think we do need to reset. And, of course, the, the absolutely central thing is the relation that people have with their boss. The, the extraordinary fact is that when you do these reconstructions of the previous day in a person's life, when what were they doing, who were they with, how did they feel, the worst time of day, on average, is when you're with your, your line manager. So that's something deeply wrong, isn't it? I mean, the line manager should be inspiring you, feeling you, your work is appreciated and so on, most of the time. I don't mean always, but that should be the normal basis of a relationship you have with your boss. And in fact, they're turning you off and making you feel down and put down. And that can't be right. There's something dreadfully wrong with the philosophy of management, which has, I think, developed in the wrong direction. Uh, partly as a result of the um, teachings of American business schools, which have spread wide across the world. And the, the problem is that if you think of your job as a manager as being, as it were, pulling levers on puppets um, who will respond above all to financial incentives, you've got quite the wrong idea of how people function well at work. And some people function like that, of course, if they're doing a very individual task. It's okay to pay them for what they do. That's the only sensible way to do it. But most people work in teams. They get enormous satisfaction if, if the team is functioning well from how, the, how well the team is doing. And the last thing you want to do is to try and rank all the members of the team um, who's doing best and so on in order to allocate a limited number of points for bonus. So that's that's a kind of thing which has got to go in order to build up team spirit. But also, of course, you get good team spirit when team leader is really consulting with members of the team about how the work should be organised, not only the times of day and so on, but the actual organisation of the work. This has been shown very well in proper random trials organised from MIT and elsewhere. So we do know that we can make our work very much more enjoyable by much more team-based, friendly and appreciative management rather than the setting of rigid targets and your head's on the line if you don't meet them. We don't want management by fear, we want management by inspiration. Let's talk about the government's role in increasing the happiness of its people. 
The OECD, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, started measuring GDP 60-odd years ago and said recently that we should put people's well-being at the centre of the government's efforts. The EU also wants to put well-being at the centre of policy design. New Zealand, Scotland and Iceland, who are all female-led countries, each have well-being budgets. Do you see evidence that governments are actually designing policies specifically to create the greatest possible happiness? This is a a big worldwide movement of people who want that to happen. And it's uh, being talked about in many countries and it's being acted on in a few. New Zealand was the the pioneering country which had what it called a well-being budget last year. And that, I think, has excited many other countries to really think about what is the object of government. And I think that COVID is a very good moment to raise this question. Now, if we'd raised this question 200 years ago in London, most enlightened people would have said, of course, the objective of government is to create as much happiness in the population as possible. And if you'd ask the same question of Thomas Jefferson, that's exactly what he in fact did say, that the life and happiness of the people is the only only purpose of government. And I think it's very difficult to think of any other purpose of government, provided we also take into account, of course, the distribution of happiness and think that a major purpose is to eliminate misery. So I think that this is a way of thinking which is now on its way back in again. It, it, it went out in some peculiar philosophical nightmare in the 19th century, but it's coming back in now Partly, I think, because of the new science of happiness, which has provided operational numbers which you can use in order to think about policy priorities. So what we're all wanting now is for governments to say that their objective is the well-being of the people and that therefore they will choose their policy priorities on the basis of how much difference they make to the well-being of the people. There isn't any other criteria. If you think about a ro- whether to build a road or whatever, it's exactly the same. If you're thinking about whether to do something about child mental health, you compare all of these possible ways of spending money in terms of how much difference it makes to well-being for every pound which is spent. And you do the same, for example, when you're thinking about regulations, when to come out of the lockdown, all these other things. So this is a powerful line of thought. It's making strong headway. In England, we've got a What Works Centre for Wellbeing, a sort of quasi-government body, which provides government with the evidence on this. But we do need a stronger lead from politicians to say that this is what we want our system of government to be delivering. You mentioned distribution there, and uh, there is plenty of evidence, isn't there, that inequality can increase stress and anxiety, not just for those at the bottom, but also for those at the top. So does happiness economics encourage a redistribution of wealth? I think it encourages very much what I was saying at the beginning about Scandinavia. It encourages a philosophy for approaching all problems in which you think of each person as being of equal importance and that you are doing what you can to especially to alleviate misery. Now, one of the causes of misery is poverty, and therefore that's one of the targets we should be going for. And 
One of the oldest findings of well-being science is, of course, that money is worth more to a poor person than it is to a rich person, which is a, a very simple argument for redistribution. But I also think that this goes beyond money, because the, the, the issue of what is the most important problems for society to be addressing should be based on a proper empirical idea of who are the most disadvantaged people. So if we go back to the discussion we had about what are the causes of misery, they are not only deprivation of money, as it were, the means to live, they're also deprivation of all other kinds of happiness, deprivation of the ability to feel anything other than depressed, deprivation of the ability to form a, a proper happy family in which to bring up children. So we need to focus on all the sources of deprivation and not just on the financial sources of deprivation. You touched on trust earlier in our conversation and the the role that trust plays in happiness. I wonder what the research shows about our current level of trust here in the UK, the trust in our leaders, particularly during this challenging time with this pandemic and, of course, with the divisive Brexit in the country. How does the trust in our leaders transfer to our overall happiness as a society? I think it's important, and and one of our colleagues has indeed done an international study of the effect of trust in government on overall well-being, and it's it's certainly significant. And it's not particularly high at the moment in Britain. It it was quite high, as as you probably know, in the early phase of the lockdown, but it's now down to a fairly lowish level by international standards. I think that uh, we very much do need people to feel that if they don't trust in government, that you can't really have a feeling that the whole society is sort of pulling together for the benefit of, of all. And we've got to somehow regain the kind of levels of trust which you see at a very much higher level in the Scandinavian countries that I was talking about. So trust in government is one important thing, but another very important thing, of course, is trust in your fellow beings. And that varies enormously across countries. And in the Scandinavian countries, you're talking about something like 70% of people say they think most other people can be trusted. And in Britain, it's in the the lowish 30s. That, I think, is an issue which we, we deeply need to address in our school system as well as in our political system. You make a reference, actually, uh, in the book to the link between the levels of unhappiness and the growth of populism. Just tell us a little bit more about that relationship. There are many sources of of populism. Obviously, there's a long-term trend in in reduced deference, which I think we should welcome. But there's then the discrediting of the elite um, in the financial crisis, which the elite have never really recovered from. Then there's obviously immigration issues, but I still think that the social media are a major source of populism because they appear, uh, are felt in the heart, to legitimise anger. And I don't think that that is a, a very constructive point of view if it turns into trying to find scapegoats and um, believe in leaders who, who are constantly contrasting them and us. That's not a good thing. So you would argue that populism doesn't make us happy? Oh, I'm sure populism doesn't make us happy. No. Um, 
I, I think it's a, a route to a, a, a much less happy society. And I really hope that we'll see populist trends in so many countries being reversed as soon as possible. And I think that part of it is, is also encouraged by this very stressful form of management, which is making so many people feel down and, uh, and worthless. If we could have a more compassionate form of management, a more compassionate society in which people are not always trying to find somebody else to look down on, this would lead to a very, very much better situation for everybody. So we know that governments uh, are one of the drivers for a change of culture, but you've also set up uh, this social movement called Action for Happiness. Tell me what does that do and how does that help change happen? Well, we, we need a change in culture where people have better values and, and better goals. And I think that we have a situation where, partly as a result of the decline in religious belief, there is a sort of moral vacuum, which people fill in different ways, and people talk about these things. But into a vacuum, the natural default it becomes egotism and self-absorption. And we've got to energetically put, put something much more powerful and emotionally charged, but of a positive kind, into that vacuum. And we have never actually had cultures in human history in which the values of society are not embodied in organisations where people meet regularly to be reminded of what is really important, to regain their sense of perspective, to regain the sense of hope, to feel supported, to feel they're supporting other people. And that is what Action for Happiness is. It's a, a movement, of course, there's a massive presence online, especially at the moment, but ultimately it's mainly a movement of people getting together regularly in groups to discuss and plan effectively ways of improving their lives and the lives of others as part of that. So each group starts with a course. Uh, it's called Exploring What Matters. And uh, it's been subjected to a proper randomised trial. And it has been shown to have an extraordinary effect on happiness. I was I must admit, surprised, the effect on happiness two months after taking the course is greater than the effect of finding a job or finding a partner in life. So it's, it's, it's an important transformative experience to feel you belong to an organisation that has this great purpose of producing a, a happier world and provides a framework in which you can work out with others what you can do to contribute to that. So I'm... I'm very hopeful. It's got members in most countries in the world now. It's got a million followers on Facebook and it's doing very well online in the COVID situation. So I'm sure there are others <laughs> attempting similar sorts of things. But this this is one way in which I think any listener who is really feeling, yes, I need to get clearer on my my purpose in life, I want to meet up more often with people, like-minded people who are, are trying to lead their lives in a purposive and positive way, which will make for a better world. I would encourage any, anybody in that frame of mind to go and look up Action for Happiness. Richard, thank you very much indeed for talking to us today. It's been wonderful. My pleasure. <laughs> 
The Rathbones Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood.